Let's Talk Native is produced at the Eltian Studios on the Cattaraugus territory of the Seneca Nation. We break all the rules for native media by peeling back the layers of assimilation and indoctrination. We may step on a few toes through our examination of culture, art, politics, history, and identity. But the real goal here is to bring our people together by breaking down what separates us. So, welcome to Let's Talk Native with John Kane. I'm John Kane, and this is Let's Talk Native. Hey, I was asked recently to, to draft up not necessarily a legal defense, but more so a strategy in defending native-to-native trade. Of course, it turns into a little bit of a legal defense as well. So I wanted to read for today's program the paper that I wrote on defense and challenges uh, to native-to-native trade. So here goes. On its face, the issue of native-to-native trade should seem relatively benign, if not a foregone accepted conclusion. Certainly, it passes any moral or ethical standard and easily, if not specifically, fits within the minimum standards of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. But the fog comes with the proverbial questions as to what is legal who decides what is legal, and how is legal even determined. What this paper will attempt to do is expose where legal departs from moral and ethical. It must be acknowledged that while the United States has undeniably committed genocide against indigenous peoples of Turtle Island, its officers, from the military to its courts, to its legislatures, and the presidents, can claim no law was ever broken, and all of its native policies were legal, even when clearly immoral or unethical. All three questions here seem pretty black and white, but the question as to what is legal and how is legal determined are not as obvious as one might think. In a country like the United States, there is a distinct pride in asserting that not only its judicial system, but its entire overall foundation is built on rule of law. But that's not necessarily true, particularly as it relates to U.S. policy regarding Native peoples. Right from the start, the colonies or the colonial empire grappled with the question as to how to define the relationship to Native peoples as outside and even hostile to the colonies. The foundational documents of the new union of colonies either listed native peoples as a threat to their security or as clearly distinct from them and outside their new nation. The Declaration of Independence referenced the original inhabitants of this land as the merciless Indian savages whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions. And their U.S. Constitution distinguished native peoples as the them rather than the us, three times, twice listing Indian tribes as distinct but on par with foreign nations in the Treaty Clause and the Commerce Clause, and once detailing Indians not taxed to be excluded 
from enumeration for taxation and representation. The treaty clause and the hundreds of treaties that would come from it further established the U.S. recognition of Native peoples as distinct sovereign nations, warranting these Native-to-Native treaties, which the United States Constitution defined as among the supreme laws of the land. So far, so good on the rule of law front, but enter ambition and the long arms that stretch beyond the law. Thus, the Commerce Clause, though explicitly referring to a federal power to regulate commerce with Indian tribes, quickly became interpreted as a claim of power to regulate the Indian tribes themselves. A country that claimed rule of law as its means to prevent tyranny runs into trouble when its laws limit its own ambitions. And while the promise of rule of law is intended to protect those within its warm embrace, there appears to still be room for tyranny and authoritarian rule for those who are not. There are three legal doctrines that owe themselves specifically to the opinions of Justice John Marshall, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court from 1801 to 1835, that are not based on rule of law, but rather a concocted power that the U.S. supposedly claims to avoid, namely authoritarian rule. These legal doctrines enter U.S. law as legal dicta offered in opinions on the rulings made by the Supreme Court. The Doctrine of Christian Discovery. This doctrine enters U.S. law in the opinion written by Chief Justice John Marshall in 1823 in Johnson v. McIntosh, and was cited and defined as recently as 2005 by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She wrote that under the doctrine of discovery, fee title to the lands occupied by Indians when the colonists arrived became vested in the sovereign, first the discovering European nation, and later the original states and the United States. Notice that Justice Ginsburg dropped the word Christian, even though Marshall, ruling in Johnson, specifically stated the doctrine as a right of Christian peoples to own native lands. Marshall even emphasized the word Christian. The doctrine of Christian discovery, even in its abbreviated (laughs) doctrine of discovery, was drawn from Catholic Church dogma and the papal bulls of the 15th and 16th century and specifically was interpreted to grant the Christian monarchs of Europe the power to claim the lands occupied by pagans or non-Christians. Today, the Vatican, and the Pope specifically, claim the doctrine of Christian discovery was not a church doctrine, and that it was a misinterpretation of Vatican documents and the papal bulls by the colonizing nations of Europe. In fact, the Vatican recently rejected responsibility for it and has strongly condemned it. But by the time this outspoken response came, the doctrine had long become codified into U.S. law. It is important to see that the Johnson case was between two non-Native parties claiming to own land. Marshall ruled against the party that claimed ownership via the purchase from Natives in favor of the party who claimed ownership via a grant from the U.S. The Marshall Court turned this case into a case about Native land ownership and ruled that Native people could not hold title to the land they'd occupied for thousands of years, and they therefore could not sell it. He said the other party, claiming the land under a U.S. grant, 
could own the land because the U.S. claimed to hold the title to it. Denying Native ownership of their lands was only part of the injustice. Marshall literally equated the discovery of an inhabited country with conquest of those inhabitants and the land. He wrote, however extravagant the pretension of converting the discovery of an inhabited country into conquest may appear, if the principle has been asserted in the first instance and afterwards sustained, if a country has been acquired and held under it, if the property of the great mass of the community originates in it, it becomes the law of the land and cannot be questioned. So this extravagant pretension becomes added to the laws of the land. Moreover, this extravagant pretension and the denial of the land ownership seems to ignore clear and documented U.S. recognition that Native nations can and do hold title to their lands. The Canada-David Treaty of 1794, for example, states, Now, the United States acknowledges all the lands within the aforementioned boundaries to be the property of the Seneca Nation. And the United States will never claim the same nor disturb the Seneca Nation nor any of the Six Nations or their Indian friends residing thereon and united with them in the free use and enjoyment thereof. But it shall remain theirs until they choose to sell the same property to the people of the United States who have the right to purchase. The U.S. trust responsibility, in other words, converting Native peoples to wards of the state. Chief Justice John Marshall once again establishes a legal doctrine following up on the claim in Johnson v. McIntosh that the sovereignty of the Native peoples was necessarily diminished upon discovery by suggesting that Native peoples were reduced to wards of the U.S., in his opinion, in Cherokee versus Georgia of 1831. Here, Marshall declares that the framers of the Constitution did not really consider Indian tribes as foreign nations, but more as domestic dependent nations. Marshall wrote, The relationship of the tribes to the United States resembles that of a ward to its guardian. This ward-guardian view later became known as the trust responsibility of the United States towards Native nations. It's from Marshall's Cherokee opinion that the notion of the U.S. trust responsibility was developed, specifically that the federal government serves as the trustee to the Native wards of the United States. And this view persists among policymakers today. In 2014, Congressman Paul Gozar publicly stated that American Indians were wards of the federal government. The U.S. Supreme Court has repeatedly stated that the trust doctrine is actually a tool for implementing U.S. domination of Native peoples. In 2011, for example, in the case of the United States versus the Hickorya Apache, Justice Samuel Alito wrote the court's opinion saying, Congress may style its relationship with the Indians as a trust without assuming all the fiduciary responsibilities of a private trust, creating a trust relationship that is limited or bare compared to a trust relationship between private parties at common law. Throughout the history of Indian trust relationship, we have recognized that the organization and management of the trust is a sovereign function subject to the plenary powers of Congress which has the plenary powers to divest the tribes of any attributes of sovereignty. 
plenary authority to legislate for the Indian tribes in all manners, including their form of government. Plenary authority over the Indians and all their tribal relations and full power to legislate concerning their tribal property. Thus, while administration relates to the welfare of the Indians, the maintenance and limitation which Congress has prescribed is distinctly an interest of the United States. Congress has structured the trust relationship to reflect its considered judgment about how the Indians ought to be governed. For two centuries, the United States has claimed authority over Native peoples and Native resources under this authoritarian rule, thinly disguised as a trust responsibility. There's a growing public awareness of the dysfunction of this authoritarian rule, exemplified in such popular culture phenomena as the book and adapted film Killers of the Flower Moon, which highlights the abuses of this ward-guardian relationship controlling old sage oil wealth. Nevertheless, the notion that Native peoples are too incompetent or untrustworthy to have control over their own businesses and resources persists as an official policy called law today. The Indian Gaming Regulatory Act is a perfect example. The Plenary Powers Doctrine. This last of Chief Justice John Marshall's opinions that established authoritarian rule as the law of the land relating to Native peoples was perhaps more accurately a suspension of the rule of law. It comes from his opinion in Worcester versus Georgia of 1832. Here, the through line of the reduction of the status of Native peoples via the doctrine of Christian discovery and the U.S. claimed trustee relationship completes its circle to establish the U.S. Congress as the sole and ultimate authority over Native peoples and affairs with a claim of the power to regulate the meets and bounds of tribal sovereignty. With this final act of authoritarian rule, divined out of Marshall's court, the U.S. claims that the rule of law prevails by simply stating that their lawmaking body has ultimate authority to create anti-Indian laws out of thin air, without constitutional restrictions. The supposed rule of law consists of a claim that U.S. Congress has plenary powers over Native affairs. Not only could the Osage be stripped of their rights, as in the example above, but Congress was declared free to abrogate any and all treaties. Moreover, the so-called trust relationship could defy conventional trust law by placing the U.S. national interest above any fiduciary responsibility to their trustees, merely with the consent of Congress. The claim of plenary powers of Congress allowed for the theft, abuse, and forced assimilation of children with their Indian residential slash boarding schools. It authorized them to pass the Indian Citizenship Act of 1924, where they simply declared that all free and independent Native peoples to no longer be such, but now to be U.S. citizens. It allowed Congress to pass the Indian Child Welfare Act, where federal authorities could dictate guidance for states on child placement without acknowledging any authority of Native governments or their courts to determine the fate of their own children. The claimed plenary powers of Congress allowed them to put states in the Native gaming industry by forcing Native communities to enter into state gaming compacts. Genocide was still immoral and unethical. But Congress made it legal. All this comes from the trilogy of martial rulings without any original rule of law, 
other than the law of Christian imperialism. This claimed absolute power of Congress has not come without objection. In recent years, these foundational U.S. claims of power have been subject to critique even in the U.S. Supreme Court, the very place that created this authority, specifically from Justice Clarence Thomas. While other justices have argued the Constitution grants this power and suggested that the Founding Fathers intended for Congress to possess these plenary powers, Justice Thomas sees no such authority granted to Congress and has said so in several opinions. Where does this leave us? Unfortunately, too often we see legal counsel for nation governments and private sector playing on the notion of the trust responsibility without realizing how complicit this is with promoting the claim that we are mere wards of the state. We also find that in our battles with the states, we too often defer to the federal claim of authority or even rely on it. Here again, we ignore the fact that doing so props up the claim by the federal government and Congress specifically that they have ultimate authority to determine our fate. We need to stop submitting to their extravagant pretension and false claims to authority over us. It's fine to hold the federal government responsible for debts and obligations actually owing to us, but we do not have to keep repeating this notion of a trust responsibility. The United States does have obligations, and we do need to hold them accountable for the wrongs they have committed and continue to commit. But they are not our trustees, and we are not their wards. We can and should take on the states on any infringement of our autonomy and our sovereignty. But we can do so without insisting that the federal government has the right to dictate our lives. They don't either. Next, in spite of its lack of bite or enforcement powers, we need to pound on the stark violations of the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples that non-Native governments continue to perpetrate against us. Without ever saying the words, it is clear that this declaration was intended to end the genocidal treatment of Indigenous peoples. Native-to-Native trade is fundamental to our existence. It always has been. It, like many of the other specific protections called out in the UN DRIP, represent the minimum standards for our survival and dignity. The UN DRIP calls the arguments and legal doctrines used against us racist, scientifically false, legally invalid, morally condemnable, and socially unjust. This hard-fought declaration calls all these legal machinations of authoritarian rule legally invalid. The UN DRIP states unequivocally that policies that impact and interfere with our own economic development, financial stability, and quality of life require free, prior, and informed consent. That's consent, not consultation. The United States, Canada, and Australia all voted against the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. It's clear why. These four modern-day colonial powers have committed genocide for centuries. The U.S. and Canada refuse to acknowledge our rights to govern our own people and lands. Both the U.S. and Canada insist that any endorsement from them of the U.N. DRIP is based on redefining self-determination as merely internal and devoid of any notion of sovereignty or control over our lands and resources. They have separated what they deem legal from what the world knows as moral and ethical and attempt to hide it under their laws. 
We as Native people need to fully acknowledge the fallacy of these legal doctrines used against us and stand together to support each other and lift each other. Native to Native trade is one of the foremost ways to build Native strength and unity. We have seen it in the tobacco industry, and we need to push this in any of our current and emergent industries, including cannabis, hemp sales, and production. While being responsible to the public, Native and non-Native, we need to resist incursions by state and federal authorities to control what commerce we bring to our lands and people and how we conduct that commerce. Our standards must be determined by us. It should be noted that an example of taking a stand against this racist authoritarian rule has been made by a Native nation in the United States Supreme Court in Washington State versus Cougar Den in 2018. The Yakima Nation submitted an amicus brief on behalf of a private sector Yakima business, Cougar Den. The brief consisted of two distinct arguments. The first was a broad challenge to the foundation doctrine of U.S. subjugation of Native peoples, the doctrine of Christian discovery. The Yakima served notice that Native people were not just knocking on the door of the House of Cards, but were prepared to topple it. The second part of their brief asserted their inherent rights were acknowledged and enshrined in the Yakima Nation Treaty of 1855. While the court treated the doctrine of discovery argument as too toxic to touch, they ruled in favor of the Cougar Den Company under the Yakima Treaty argument. Make no mistake, notice had been served. The Cougar Den case was much more than the defense of a Yakima business. This fight has bolstered the defense of native-to-native trade across the board. Its significance isn't just that it was before the Supreme Court and its ruling was favorable. It is significant because the Yakima Nation stepped up and not only made a long overdue argument, but in doing so, they took the court's anti-Indian doctrines argument away. This is the example that has been set and must be followed, not just in court, but in our everyday practices. The American Holocaust is real. Refusal by the United States to comply with even the minimum standards laid out in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples is the modern-day genocide that we face. We cannot defend our livelihoods and our quality of life without defending our sovereignty and autonomy. We cannot keep hoping to slip through loopholes in their system to create opportunities. We need to assert our regulatory advantages and utilize our sovereignty, autonomy, and unity as assets while remembering that sovereignty is not our defense, it's what we defend. Now, I must acknowledge that this opinion I've written here, this paper I've written, owes much of its background, I guess, to Peter DeRico's Federal Anti-Indian Law, The Legal Entrapment of Indigenous Peoples. And I actually had collaboration with Peter DeRico and Ross John Sr. on this work. I want to thank you for listening. If you want to see this as a written document, you can see I've got it posted on Facebook under my Let's Talk Native group page. Yahweh.